Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. To us. Well, to the podcast. To the podcast. It's neither of our actual birthdays. It is not. That would be weird if it was. Yeah, if our one-year anniversary of the podcast was on an actual birthday, that'd be great. Uh, no. So what happened for this episode, Jill? I don't know. Not much. Not not a big not, not a, a big whole deal. Lot. Not a whole lot. We interviewed Alan Cumming. Yeah, we did. The legend, Alan, the great, this the best person on earth. Alan Cumming, I think. He certainly has one of the best voices. Uh, yeah. He's just a wonderful person, and he we. <laughs> We got there, and he was in the middle of signing 400 books. Yes. Just, yes, he was. And because he didn't have time to stay after, because he had to go do a show at Playhouse Square. He had to go sing songs. He had to sappy go songs. sing sappy songs. Alan Cummings sings sappy songs. That is his cabaret-style show. So he couldn't stay after, so he had to do that beforehand. And then we talked, talked, we spoke, we chatted for an hour. Words are hard. Uh, we chatted with him for an hour about his newest book, which is You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams. We talked about his memoir, which is Not My Father's Son. We talked about how he narrates audiobooks. We talked about him on The Good Wife. We talked about a lot. We talked about a lot because he's done so much. So, uh, it, uh, so good. I don't have words to describe how great this was and we took the i'm just going to call it the greatest selfie of all time we did we did it was a good selfie yeah with alan the two of us and then 400 of our closest new friends yep so if you are looking at this on libsyn you will see that and if you follow us on social media you probably have seen that already so yeah it was amazing and this is our big one year anniversary of the podcast can you believe it it's crazy i over a year, I, just, I have no words. Over a year ago, you came up to me and you're like, I have an idea for a thing. Why don't we do a podcast? I know. I was like a brand new employee, too. I think I'd been here for like a month. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I came I and I was that. like, we should have a podcast. Yeah. And then we sat down and we uh, came up with how we wanted to structure it, which has changed a lot anyway. Agreed. And uh, we came up with a name and we pitched it to my director. He said, uh, go for it. And then we recorded a few episodes in rooms that had horrible sound. (laughs) Oh, God, they did. It was horrible. And now we have our own recording studio. We do. Which you and I just kind of have taken over as our little private office. Yes. Um, So, yeah, it's been a long time. And like you said before, thank you to everyone who stuck with us in the beginning. I our our first episode i wanted to look this up just to see oh no <laughs> no we i think we got when it first we got like 60 downloads 60 on the first day which All is right. actually pretty good well, the first but, day of something not too shabby yeah Never. but we've come a long way since Thankfully, then we have more than we that have now. more than that now if we had so thank you everybody yeah thank you if we only had 60 downloads now for all these episodes my director would probably be very mad that we paid a lot of money for all these and like after that was probably overdrive employees oh, to be 100, honest 100 yeah There's so many, yeah uh, you're, without question and they're probably like us downloading them on different devices and computers um so yeah it's we're feeling happy and nostalgic and all those good things and we look forward to many, many, many more episodes of 
providing you guys book recommendations and fun interviews with authors and yeah i don't know is there other things i don't know no uh thursday is gonna be our big best books of 2016 episode yes so we're going to bring back a number of our staff librarians and co-workers who have been on the podcast before and ask them what their favorite books are we're gonna let everyone say their three favorite books because asking someone their favorite book is very difficult which you'll hear alan Cumming talk about that he hates offering up favorite things and then i proceeded to ask him our nerd nine all about his favorite stuff so yep Um, but yeah on thursday we'll have a bunch of people coming in and telling them telling you guys their favorite books of the year so give you a nice year-end best of type of a list yep and actually do us a favor if you have your favorite books send us an email at feedback at overdrive.com we'd love to hear what your favorite books are i'm actually working on creating a overdrive users favorite books of the year list on overdrive.com so i would love to add our podcast listeners in there so if you send us an email that would be would be great i would love to see those so uh like i said you can find us on facebook and twitter and pinterest and email us and all that good stuff all that jazz so anything else no what about you i don't think so i'm excited our holiday party is tonight so <laughs> i'm very excited about that yeah we're recording this on friday yeah overdrive throws a good par- we always we do always this. throw a good party yeah we throw a good party and very very excited about that so see if any of our library listeners come to gp the gp i the can't GP. speak today okay. the gp in august i'll get to find out yeah the parties they are spectacular so all right well I was going to sing Cabaret, but I'm just, we've already done that once, so I'm not going to force people to listen to me do that again. Uh, I hope you all enjoy this very special one-year anniversary episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast with Alan Cumming. No doubt you've enjoyed his many films, including Circle of Friends, Emma, and Goldeneye. He also co-wrote, co-directed, and co-starred in Anniversary Party with his friend Jennifer Jason Lee. His range is truly extraordinary. He has, been, he has voiced a Smurf, played Hamlet. He's been an X-Men and hosted Masterpiece Theater, the Tonys, and the International Emmy Awards. In 2012, he opened his first photography exhibition, Alan Cumming Snaps. He also found time to introduce an award-winning fragrance called, appropriately enough, Cumming, (laughs) and a later scent, Second Cumming. (laughs) In 2014, he published his best-selling memoir, Not My Father's Son. And of course, today we are here to celebrate his latest book, You Gotta Get Bigger Dreams, of which you'll be getting a copy, as well as his hit one-man show, Alan Cummings Sings Sappy Songs. And of course, Alan will be also appearing tonight down at Playhouse Square in the Connor Palace at 7.30. So without further ado, please welcome our professional book nerds and true renaissance man, Mr. Alan Cumming. Hello. Hello. That was a lot. I was worried your intro, we weren't even going to have time to actually ask you any questions. (laughs) You've done so much. I'm very old. (laughs) All right, so just to kick us off, uh, can you maybe share with people who might not be aware why and what You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams is kind of all about and where the idea came from? It's it's a book. It's a book. 
first of all. And uh, it's a good start. It's a book of stories and photographs that are that are sort of little. I mean, I I, I like this idea of snapshots. They're snapshots of my life, literally and visually, and it's just a kind of way for me to, you know, tell stories about things that have happened to me, but also do it in a way that's not maybe the conventional way. And I like the idea of doing a, you know, I, I like taking photographs. But I like I kind of like snapping the essence of a moment rather than taking a beautiful picture mostly, and so I thought there's a good way to kind of combine my photos and and also I like I like it the idea that it's what a book you can pick up and read one of the stories and put down and then pick it up again and you know it's a good on the loo book. Yeah. <laughs> I will admit to reading it all in one sitting, not on the loo. That would have been, but I will been, admit going all the way through. Yeah. So, so I will admit I read it all in, at once. So That's fine too. All right. <laughs> Um, you wrote your memoir, Not Your Father's Son, and it's such a moving and emotional story. This is a little more of a lighthearted approach to the things in your life. What was sort of the mental transition between writing these two different books? Well, actually, I, I, I sort of started this book before Not My Father's Son. So I've been, some of the stories go um, way back. Like, Well, the first story is about when I got my first camera when I was 10. And then there's a story about Gore Vidal that I wrote shortly after I... Um, spent the time with them that the story's about. So the, the, those stories I'd started to do, and then all the stuff that happened to me because uh, that was mm-hmm. the um, catalyst for Not My Father's Son happened. So I kind of postponed, you know, put this book to the side and then wrote that one. So coming back to it was actually a really nice, sort of uh, fun kind of thing to do after the sort of intensity of Not My Father's Son. And I felt that I and my readers could do with a bit of a break, you know, a <laughs> lighten up a bit. But I, I mean, but that's... But the, so the stories are, it's also more about my contemporary life mm-hmm. now. And, um, and, and also I wanted to kind of just, you know, do a book about the crazy stuff that I, that I experienced, but also be able to stand outside it and, 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 you know, give it the value of crazy that it deserves. And so you've got to get bigger dreams. It's obviously a very visual book, but for you know, Not My Father's Son, we both listen to the audio book. It's something that I'm a big fan of anytime there's a memoir or an autobiography, listening to the person actually tell the story is something that makes, I think it brings the story to an entirely another level. And that you're not just doing audiobooks of your own stories. You have a history of, of doing audiobooks yeah. for others as well. So can you maybe just take us through that experience of creating an audiobook version of a title, whether it's for yourself or for another author? Well, it's, um, I really like it, actually. I really like doing audiobooks because um, it's just, you know, I, I sort of think of myself as a storyteller. No matter what I do, it's, that's all I'm doing is, is really telling stories in different forms. So actually just sitting down and telling a story is like the sort of, you know, apotheosis of that. And so I, it's, it's quite intense because, you know, if it's a whole no, unabridged novel, it can take quite a few days. Um, and you're just in a little studio on your own with someone through the glass kind of telling you when you've missed a word or something. <laughs> um, but so w- when it's, um, you know, someone else's book, I just, I read the book and... And just if there's lots of different accents and things, you know, you have to kind of do a little bit of preparation. And not, once I did a Michael Ondaatje book that was set in Sri Lanka, and there was one, there was one page that was just a list of uh, Sri Lankan names of people who'd been <laughs> murdered in this sort of. <laughs> like, oh my god! One page took me like an hour uh-huh. with all the pronunciations. But um, for my book, it was uh, my books. It's been interesting because I haven't, you know, I, I've read, I maybe read passages of them aloud, uh, just to my husband or to friends or something but most a, a, a huge swathe of it I've never read you know aloud before so it's kind of funny uh, hearing your own story in a different way and then the first my first book is a novel I wrote called Tommy's Tale they re-released that 
um, when Not My Father's Son came out. And so, <coughs> and shortly before that, I did the audiobook. I don't know why I didn't do it when it came out, but it was really kind of funny going back to something after such a long time. And, and I, was, I was reading my own book thinking, gosh, it does end rather suddenly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to get better at structure. Um, but the, and I actually even did an audiobook of Not My Father's, of um, this one, You've Got to Get Bigger Dreams. So I have an audiobook with a, when you download it, you get a PDF file with a lot of the pictures on it. So it's kind of an audiovisual book. Oh. I'm just imagining you being like, Describing the picture while it's imagine me sitting with my dog yes. and his. Well, sometimes you have to go. You have to go like so. And in the picture, which you can download on your PDF, <laughs> on the blah, 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 it's a little laborious, I thought. <laughs> That's actually kind of fun. A lot of audiobooks now, especially with memoirs, the actors sort of insert a little bit extra when they when they do the audiobooks. They don't just straight read the books. They add commentary a little oh, bit. Oh, did they? Oh, I didn't do that. It's <laughs> okay. Next time, next time. You can do the that. one thing I did, I read the, I read the uh, acknowledgments, you know, at the end, that I, and I'd never read them uh, before, and also I'd never kind of, I'd, you do the acknowledgments at the, the very end, you know, just before everything goes to press, or print, or you call it nowadays. And um, that, was, that was the hardest part for me, because I hadn't actually ever read that aloud, and what I was saying was much more new and less... Um, uh, measured, you know what I mean? Because I, I, I sort of said, I forgive my father, and I'd forgotten I'd said that, and I, I suddenly got all upset in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the studio. <laughs> so um, this is a book about your camera, and as an actor, you're used to having cameras on you all the time, and, and you sort of, I'm imagining... Yes, I do. Yes, you do, yes, I, I know. Do. There's cameras now in the audience. Yeah, I would say there's, there's a few in here. <laughs> a few flashes. Um, as an actor, I'm imagining you sort of pull personal experiences that you use when you act on, you know, when you're acting. With Not My Father's Son, here you are in this very, um, dealing with this personal stuff behind this cameras, but you're filming this reality TV show trying to not let that come on camera. Like, what was that like? It was a nightmare. I mean, it's really, really crazy. I mean, this is the thing about my last book, where I, I was doing this BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? You know, where they trace your genealogy. And then at the same time as I was filming that, I was dealing with the fact that my father had told me I wasn't his biological son. And, and I was traveling all around the world on this show and trying to like, do a DNA test with my brother and all these things. It was, it was just, it was, it was maddening. I mean, I felt really, I felt, you know, and having to sort of, my father suddenly was back in my life mm -hmm. after 20 years. And, and I was then I went back to film this thing in South Africa and, it, it was really, I mean, the craziest, sort of funniest, but awful things. The last time I ever spoke to my father, when, you know, when I discovered the results of the DNA test and had to tell him, and I knew this would be the last time I'd ever talk to him. And I said, so, I, I, I finished the call, put the phone down, I realized I was completely in drag in my trailer in, <laughs> in at lunchtime in South Africa. I was playing a transvestite. And so I was wearing, like, I had my, my wig was off, I had full makeup, a bra. With chicken cutlets and like you know stockings and high heels and everything. I thought this is absolutely perfect. This is, <laughs> really is the icing on a very horribly tasting cake. <laughs> uh, so, and not to bounce around a little bit, but we you know, want to cover as much of your you know, life and amazing experiences as we have. So, uh, with your cabaret style show, Alan Cummings sings sappy songs. Uh, in your most recent title, you talk about a little bit how you had these singing opportunities where you were used to playing characters, and so in your mind, you were, the character could sing. It wasn't Alan Cumming singing. It was yeah. the MC singing. And then you had a, an experience where it was at the, the Hollywood Bowl that they said, would you like to sing these songs? And you realized it was yourself. You were actually going to be singing yes. as yourself. So 
maybe, how, is that where Alan Cummings' Sing Sappy Songs came from, was kind of realizing that you can do this as well? Well, um, yes, sort of. So, I mean, what really happened was I did, so that was a long time ago, that's a story in, in this book uh -huh. I, about singing at the Hollywood Bowl, because it's just such a, it was the first time I ever sang, you know, as me. It didn't start small, it was at the Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> with a 70-piece orchestra and 18,000 people in the audience, and I was doing it with Anne Miller, the MGM musical legend, and Charlotte Church, voice of an angel, <laughs> and, uh, and Leah Deleria, uh, voice of the devil. And so, but it was one of those things that I, you know, I'd sort of thought, okay, challenge yourself. It was very far in advance. And usually I say things like that, you know, I say, yes, it's fine. It's nine months' time. I'll, be, I'll, I'll get myself ready. And then, you know, a month before, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so I did it. It was only three nights. And I just only had to sing like three songs. It wasn't that big a deal. Uh, in terms of my time and everything, but it was a huge deal in terms of that I was just walking out on stage and not, you know, have it singing in a different voice. And, and um, so then, cut to, I talk about this in my show tonight actually, in like 2008, I think, the Lincoln Center in New York asked me to, they have this thing called the American Songbook Series, and they asked me to do a concert, two concerts. Um, and they sort of, you know, they sort of pay for you to have a show, really. They kind of pay, give you money, then they sort of they commission a show, then you have a show, and you can. So I did in 2009. I did my first cabaret show. It was called "I Bought a Blue Car Today." It was about me becoming an American citizen, and um, but like a, you know, stories and songs like tonight. And I kind of really, I bit the bullet and really, you know, did it and enjoyed it. I remember like when the very first performance, like the band went on to tune up, and I was left on my own. I was so nervous, like just like totally just sh shaking, really shaking, and. And there was a little man, you know, with, the, with his um, headpiece on, a little walkie-talkie thing. And I, went, I just said to him, I said, I could run away right now, couldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and nobody would nobody know. And he was just like, he thought, oh, my God, I've got a crazy one here. <laughs> and actually, I was, I was this close. And my manager came to, the, to, the, to, to my room and said, how are you? And I, I just went, I want to punch you in the face. That's what I said. <laughs> I just was so, I felt like something was out-of-body experience. But then, you know, I got better at it, and I got more comfortable with it. And so then this show, which I started last year, um, and then coming to some songs, I, 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 because I felt I was getting better at it, I made it a more emotional and more kind of, I talk about more personal things, and it's, it's, it's you know, the songs are all quite intense, emotional songs. It's funny and everything still, but I think I've just got better at it. I mean, I'm more comfortable at being vulnerable uh, in terms of myself, and I talk about quite vulnerable things, like my father and a tattoo I had removed and things like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we sort of did bounce around questions a little bit because you've done so much. The books, the TV, movies. My porn career. Uh, that porn as well. Career. That as well. Can't forget that. That's um, my new thing. If people that come up to me and they say that thing, I'm going, I just, I know you, but I don't know where from. <laughs> I always say, do you watch a lot of porn? <laughs> and then they stop talking to you after that. <laughs> well, maybe that actually answers my next question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Is there anything I haven't done that I want to do? No, no. <laughs> That's another question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, how would you, if someone came up and asked you, like, what do you do for a living? How would you describe yourself? Well, just, I mean, just on an easy, normally I just say I'm an actor. But I, if I was to do it, like, I think at the back of the book, actually, I say I'm a, I think of myself as a, as a, a, a storyteller and a provocateur for hire. That's All right. Good. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly good. <laughs> okay, so, and don't let the fact that you're sitting in a library influence this answer at all, but if you could only pick one of your careers, <laughs> writer, actor, singer, 
you know, movies, TV, what would you choose? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's so Sophie's choice, this question. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so, like, unlikely that I'm going to be, you know, someone saying, you've got to choose, Alan! Um, but I think if I did, I mean, I mean, I really do, I mean, it would definitely be the theatre. It would definitely be being on a stage, whether it's, in a, you know, like doing a play or something, or whether it's doing my show right, like I do right now. Because what's great about this show is that I, you know, I go all over, the con- all over the world, actually, and do it. And you get this amazing connection with the audience, and, and it really sort of sates my, you know, need for live performance. But I don't have to do it for, like, you know, six months, eight shows a week. So it's actually a really nice way to kind of keep my toe in, or my hand in, whatever mm-hmm. you call it. Um, um, and, and, and also, you know, it's very... It definitely keeps your... It's definitely a workout in terms of performance yeah. because you're, it's just you... I mean, I've got my lovely band, but, you know, it's funny. I was saying the other night we ate, we ate um, this delicious dinner, but a little too near the curtain time. <laughs> and so I was so burpy. And there's, there's, there's nowhere to hide when it's just you. And, you're, you know, yeah. you have to, like, in the... I have to, like, slug water when people are clapping or laughing. And so burping is quite hard to do in a one-man show. <laughs> I feel like you could get away with just telling people, like, That's look, right. I, it's my too, show, yeah. I had yeah. a dinner, I'm sorry, you're going to have to deal I'm, with I'm this. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to burp now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we were backstage, uh, you were talking about Margaret Atwood, who's yeah. one of my absolute favorite oh, authors. She, uh. she is, yes. Um, and I know from you know following you on Instagram that you're a fan of hers, too. Yes. Are there any other authors that you really like and read? There's a, there's a really great author in Scotland called Janice Galloway, and I just always, you know, because of doing books, you have to sometimes write your ten favorite Things it's always a difficult thing that because I don't know about you, but whenever you're asked for your favorite something or other, I you can't I can't think of anything I've ever liked. It's just like, <laughs> and people say, "What's your favorite play?" Which you know, sometimes theatre say, "And any play you ever want to do, just come and do it." And I can never think of a play I've ever liked or a character <laughs> I've ever wanted to play. But with but Janice Galloway is this amazing Scottish writer, and she's really sort of um, visceral and uh, you know I, I she the book that got me going on her was uh, is called The Trick Is to Keep Breathing. And it's about a woman kind of having a breakdown, and you know, it's but it's just it's so brilliant. But you feel like you're inside this person's mind when you're reading it. I mean, it's kind of like a sort of Scottish version of Catcher in the Rye, if you like, you know, a female Scottish version. But um, but also, I hate when people do that when they say it's a, it's Catcher in the Rye meets <laughs> the Assassin, you know, those so, uh, mixtures of things. But I, I really do love her, and I'm always very excited when she has a new book out. And, I, and also, I don't think she's terribly well known here, so I'm always keen to, you know, promote Scottish talent. Well, we're in a library, so yes. lots of readers. It's perfect time, yeah. I would say. I feel, I feel like I could just see some everybody like, kind of quickly writing down, like, oh, yeah. what did you say? Janice Galloway. <laughs> uh, so Jill and I were joking before we uh, came here today that you've had a number of amazing cameos and different things, Sex and the City. Uh, you know, you also basically you were in Romeo and Michelle, and we were wondering, do you have a favorite cameo you've ever done like a favorite memory from a cameo? Um, well, yes. I, got, I mean, there's a thing that I do, uh, I've done recently, it's a, a web series called The Outs. And it, what, what happened was, I, someone said, oh, it's this funny web series. It's about these um, young people in Brooklyn. There's a gay couple who split up, and then it's about the girl, the flatmate, and they're just, just you know, it's kind of like just people trying to get by and just trying to deal with being young adults and love and, you know, everything. And I watched a few episodes of it, and I thought it was really great. And I said, I tweeted that I liked it, and you know, to try and give it a little boost. And then the, the guy who wrote it is called Adam Goldman. He um, 
tweeted back and said, oh, we love you, Alan, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I had lunch with them, and I ended up being in it, being in the outs as myself, playing myself, <laughs> which is a, sort of a heightened version of me, I have to say, but I basically just, <laughs> just make out with people everywhere and kind of... <laughs> but, but what was hilarious, I did, I did the first season, and then Vimeo um, commissioned the second season, and so basically, all I do is I go along for a couple of days and I make out with some hot boy in a bar. <laughs> and, and, everyone, and everyone does kind of, a, is that Alan coming? That's Alan coming. That's Alan coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite funny. And, and then once I did a, 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 a miniseries, um, I just went for a week to do this little part in a miniseries for the sci-fi channel. I was getting divorced at the time and I needed some money. And uh, it was easy and it was, it was only a week. And so I went and, um, and it was, you know, it was actually, it was a great thing, but I didn't, it was one of those scripts that was so dense and sci-fi and, you know, full of, you had to really, really focus. And, and I didn't really have the time to, I just kind of looked at my bits and I just couldn't really understand the plot at all. <laughs> so, and I was, I, had, I, was, I, was, I was sort of in this blue kind of, I had a blue face again, and <laughs> I was in a hood, I was some sort of you know, intergalactic monk, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And I did, the, there was one scene with this, there was a boy, one of those actors uh, who like, speaks very, you know, sort of talks like this, because you can't actually hear what they're saying in the scene, which doesn't really help when you've not got a full grasp of the whole plot yourself. <laughs> so I was just standing there being a monk, being an intergalactic monk, doing my... Thing. And when I, when I saw that, they, they sent me the thing and sent me some clips of it for the press release thing. And I realized that afterwards, they'd, you know, in, in post, uh, they'd put, there, was a, there was like a village between, between us speaking. There was a village in the background on fire and people <laughs> running around. <laughs> and nobody had told me that. that, I, that <laughs> I, just, I, I thought that might have, you know, affected my performance somewhat. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, but I actually realised when I got on that set, I thought, I don't think any of you understand this either. So <laughs> all, everyone was skirting around, the, the, you know, the, the talking about the actual plot. Um, okay, so Adam and I are huge Broadway theatre nerds. And, of course, Cabaret. What attracts you to that show to keep going back so many times? <laughs> um, well, I think it's really because it's... Um, it's because it's needed. I think it's a show that's about things that are really important and, re- and then unfortunately keep being important. And I wish we were doing it again right now because it's about, it's about the, need to, the need to embrace difference and not to make people who are other from you the enemy. And it's also about the responsibility we have as a society to be vigilant against slow and insidious extremism and that is exactly what is happening in this country right now I, I don't think anyone even if you did vote for Donald Trump could not um, admit that, that there's a sudden huge change in the fact that there are people who you know have, are supporting white supremacist attitudes in the White House mm-hmm. that's a, a sudden and marked change and so I that's kind of what was happening in, in the plot of Cabaret so I mean and two years ago when we did it again it was kind of because I felt it was relevant because of stuff that's happening in Russia and you know, and, but it just sadly, it's it's such a good. That's why these why good plays are done again. I suppose that's why we do the Greeks. You know, they still have lots to tell us. And this this show is about something about the you know both those things. The need to embrace difference and the need to be vigilant. And I just think that's those are lessons we need to keep hearing again and again. So that's really what drew, drew mm-hmm. me to them, to it. Yeah. So you you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned you did it two years ago, and perhaps the importance of it, of it still being very essential. I'm on record on our podcast telling one of the authors we spoke to, one of the biggest regrets I ever have, I never got to see you do that performance. Would you ever consider doing it again? 
not to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, actually, it's got quite funny. The lady I met in, in the, in the, when I was signing the books earlier, she thought she'd seen me in <laughs> Cleveland, and it wasn't me, someone on tour. So actually, it's quite good, people, the kind of people, you know, <laughs> when you do a show like that and then people take over, they kind of sometimes, especially that was so sort of an iconic mm. look and it's very sort of, me-ish. And so I think a lot of the time I would I would even flip through magazines and think, oh, that's me, and it wasn't <laughs> someone. So it's actually quite good that maybe someone will do it again, and, if, and people will think it's me, and it's not. But so I did it. I did it this you know 16 years ago. I did it, and then I did it um, last year, and I turned 50 when I was doing it. I know it's hard to believe, but <laughs> so that would mean if I did it another 16 years, I'd be 66 <laughs> years old. I think that would be really oh, weird and pervy to see a 66-year-old man <laughs> in a harness <laughs> this crotch. But I thought I'd say is, uh, 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 if I do it again next time, I'm going to play Fräulein Schneider <laughs> instead. I think I could pull it off. She's got some great songs. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm going to I'm putting that out there. I quite like a, a time for a trans um, <laughs> Fräulein Schneider. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> do you, are, so are there... <laughs> now that's in my head, just yeah. probably permanently... <laughs> Are there I've any got the man bun and everything already? I'm I was saying, saying yeah. you're starting sure. because the hair's already growing sure. out. Are there any Broadway shows or roles that you would love to play that you haven't yet? Again, you know, like yeah. I said earlier, I just can't. Oh, I, yeah. I can never remember anything. Yeah, I used to always say King Lear because yeah. I thought it was so far in advance. Now it's not that far, you know, as I'm getting older. <laughs> so I used to say that to shut them up. But now I, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of things that are you know bubbling around. But there's nothing that I'm really, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I also I think it's better to be open to things and just see what comes up. Because sometimes if you're so set on something, you kind of keep your focus on that and you kind of lose what might be a, a possibility around you. Mm-hmm. So Cabaret, you've talked about sort of the message and the, the necessity of, of seeing that show mm-hmm. and art in general sort of exemplifies that. Are there other shows that you would recommend sort of tackle issues that are nece- you know, like necessary on the same kind of level? Um, well, on right now, you mean that I've seen, or just oh well, I, I mean, I, I I always think you know Shakespeare and and the, and the Greeks. I did the Bacchae a few years ago by Euripides, and I think those plays. There's a reason why we keep doing them because they they talk about really vital human conflicts mm-hmm. and, and lessons that we need to hear again, and and so I w- I would just be in a, in a general way talk about those. Although there is an actual a, a play that I just I was in Edinburgh during the festival doing my show. And I went to this theatre, I did a sort of workshop thing, and they had pictures of all the old um, plays. That were, there was one of me in there in 1986 in this t- uh, Moliere play. It was shocking. But uh, there was this play I, I, I saw a, a still from, and it was called Good, and it's by C.P. Taylor. And it's kind of was mulling. I wrote it down on my, com- on my phone, and I, and I came back. And then I, I got, I got um, Jimmy in, m- in my office to get it for me recently, and we're actually going to do a reading of it in, uh, next year. And I, it's so fascinating because it's about just exactly what I was talking about. It's, I, I'd seen it once in the 80s, but it's about a man in Germany who slowly, you see him how it just, you know, he's a perfectly level-headed, it's kind of against all the Nazi things to start with, and then through kind of circumstance, cajoling, practicality, pragmatism, he suddenly is um, a member of the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really brilliantly written, and also it really shows you how easy it is for us all to slide into something and to, and to not really realize how far we've gone. And that's, this, again, this need to be vigilant. So mm-hmm. that's a play that I'm, uh, it's not necessarily the role that I'm, you know, but I'm actually, I was, uh, there was something about it that I realized I was drawn to again. And, and then when I read it, I remembered why. And, and I, 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 so things like that, that kind of just remind us of lessons we uh, have, should have learned in the past and we've got to, you know, right. be vigilant. Again, that's, that's really where I'm at right now. Yeah, no. 
Okay. Well, we want to let some of the audience members ask some questions here, but before we do that, for our podcast, we always ask nine questions that we call them the Nerd Nine because we like alliteration. And I, I feel like you're bad. Hate some of these. I, say, I feel bad because you literally just got done saying like I can never think of my favorite such and such. So right. apologies. In okay, advance. that's fine. Yeah. We won't know. Yeah, I was gonna say you can say whatever you want. We're not gonna know any, any difference. So the first one is, what is the last book that you read? Um, the last book I read is oh, um, Whiskey Galore by Compton McKenzie. It's a it's a it's an old kind of pot boiler, it's a, it was a film, it's about this um, ship that sank off the, on, uh, on the Western Isles of Scotland and there was all this, there's like a quarter of a million bottles of whiskey on it and all the locals, and it was during the, uh, yeah, during the war when there was rations so there was no whiskey on the island so they all rode out and grabbed all the whiskey <laughs> and then the excise man came to try and get you know, the money for the mm-hmm. duty on it all and, and they hid them all, they like put them in, there was always whiskey in drains and whiskey <laughs> buried and now on the island of, um, of uh, Harris, Think, oh no, Eriski, it's Eriski. Like people, sometimes when they're digging their gardens, they find bold bottles of whiskey that have been there for <laughs> 50 years. So it's oh, a really good, I, I was actually doing a documentary in, in those, about those islands, so I, I read the book to kind of get me in the mood. That is amazing. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Um, no, I don't really. I kind of like just having a, always having a book mm-hmm. in my bag and just, I love reading on planes, I have to say, because that's sort of a, nobody's going to interrupt you. Mm-hmm. The only interruption is someone's bringing your delicious glass of wine, some nuts, sure. and I like that. I'm really excited to ask this next one. Do you have a guilty pleasure that you would mind sharing with us here? <laughs> Knowing full well that you get it very personal in your show later tonight. But. Um, well, I actually don't think any, uh, there should be any guilt around pleasure. That's Good a perfect answer. answer. Okay. All right. Uh, I know you've been all over the world, but do you have a place you'd love to travel that you haven't yet been to? Uh, yeah, I haven't really been to South America very much, and I'd really like to go there. I was supposed to a couple of times, and it all kind of fell through. So that's one of the places that I, I, I want to go. And also, I'm absolutely fixated on train journeys, and I, there's an amazing... Well, there's the Trans-Siberian Express you can take from Russia, and it goes all the way to China, but there's now this other one from Vladivostok to um, Moscow that I'm obsessed with, because I love a train. I, last week, I, I did two overnight train trips, in Britain, I went because I go. What I do is, in order to beat jet lag when I go to Britain, mm-hmm. I fly on the day flight to London, then get a cab to the train station, get the overnight sleeper to Scotland. So then you wake up and you've had a sleep on the tr- on the plane, some sleep on the train, and you have a little whiskey and everything. <laughs> and then you arrive and you're up early and you kind of you know it sort of That's beats. Really good idea. It, yeah, like yeah, it takes yeah. a while longer, but it's I, lo- I love a train. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite holiday? Do you mean like a Halloween or Christmas or something? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well. I like the idea of Thanksgiving in that it's not um, religious and it's people all come together. And, uh, but I don't like that it's based on the you know genocide and the indigenous population. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair. So, torn. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I kind of like Halloween because I love seeing everyone let go and dress up. But I I don't really dr- I, I I dress up enough myself. Right. So <laughs> I don't really like that. I mean, I get. I mean, I like. I w- if, if 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 Thanksgiving had less. Evil beginnings. Ooh. That would be my favorite. Sure, sure. Uh, how about a favorite movie? Oh, well, I think my favorite movie is Waiting for Guffman. It's Christopher. Oh, yeah, because yes. it's Christopher Guest's film. He made all those kind of mockumentaries, you know, but the one about the dogs called uh, Best in Show and everything. And Waiting for Guffman's about a little town in Missouri that is putting on this show, a little kind of community show about the 150th anniversary of the town. And for some weird reason, they think that this man, Mr. Guffman's going to come and they're going to go to Broadway with this (laughs) show. And it's so hilarious and tender as well. And actually, when I 
I saw it shortly after I came to live in America, and it really taught me a lot about American culture, because I thought, if that's being parodied, it must really exist, you know? <laughs> so, Waiting for Government was a very educational film for me as well. As funny. I feel like I know the answer to this one, but we ask it every time. Cats or dogs? Oh, dogs. Yeah. That's I'm absolutely allergic to the right cats. answer. I'm allergic to cats. I really am allergic. I get my eyes go funny. And so. Okay. I'm a dog person, Jill is a cat person, so this is like this is a, a this small is a little yeah. little right. battle we have. So every time someone says dog, I kind of have like a little <laughs> little little excitement in me. Uh, favorite food? I like um, spicy things. I'm vegan, so it's kind of like you know. I once went on there's a TV show in Britain where you, you sort of it's a, a Saturday morning cooking thing, and you go on and you are interviewed whilst they're doing things, and you have to say your food heaven and your food hell, and then the audience votes to see whether or not you've got to have. my food hell was. Um, how do you say it in America? Lychees. Is that what you say? Lychees. Those little fruit. Those little lychees. Yes. We say lychees. Uh, and I just find them, like, I want to gag just even <laughs> thinking about them. So there was a thing where my, my, my heaven was, like, spicy potato croquettes or something. And my hell was that. And I had to sort of make a plea to the British public <laughs> not to make me eat lychees. Oh, God. I know. But, I, you know, I said, I said, really, I will vomit if you do that. <laughs> And I, that might have been more spur for them, but yeah. yeah. But I, I like spicy, you know, like Asian-y things. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would you pick? Um, actually, I'd love to have dinner with Donald Trump. I really would. <laughs> I would I, I'd love to watch you have dinner do. with oh, Donald yeah. Trump. You should sell tickets. <laughs> I just... I'd, you know, I just I would be fascinated just mm-hmm. be, just to just to be that close to him. Actually, I have been that close to him. Um, I sat next to him at a thing once, and um, but no, I think I'm I'm f- I'm fascinated by him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and horrified as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm you know I think it's good to kind of meet the people that you. I, I try. I, I'm st- I think we're all trying to figure him out. I think he's trying to figure himself out. <laughs> um, so I think that would be a fascinating mm-hmm. dinner um, yeah. companion. All right, well, we have a million more questions, but let's let you guys ask some questions. If you have a question, if you want to just stand up, we'll kind of call you out, and then we'll repeat the questions. People can hear. Right here in the front. Sure. Um, I had the pleasure of watching you in Macbeth on Broadway. It was an iconic moment. Um, I don't understand the politics of why you wouldn't get a nomination. <laughs> oh, that's the question. So the question, <laughs> the, que- the questions were, what were the politics for you not getting a Tony? For your performance in Macbeth, I want to make sure I get that whole thing accurate. Yes. Um, well, this is a, pr- a production I did actually first of all in Scotland at the na- for the National Theatre of Scotland, and then we did it the next year on Broadway. And I'm, it was a crazy production where, basically, I played all the parts in Macbeth, and it was incredible. You know, it was incredibly challenging. It's the most challenging I've ever done. I thought I was going to die, and it was a really kind of, um, you know, it, it was a, it wasn't a, a very very unusual thing, and and what was really great about it was that a I lived, but b we found a an audience on Broadway for such a weird kind of you know European style concept, and an audience of young people, and that really excited me. But I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why I didn't get nominated for Tony. I I have heard that it's because um, that the uh, not enough of the nominee committee had seen seen the show. That's what I heard. But and. It's a tragedy, I know, but you know that it's, <laughs> it's, only, it's like one of these things when you're, it's a really weird situation because awards are this double-edged sword, of course, everybody wants to be patted on the back, it's nice, but like if you're, you know, like you see all this list going, absolute shoo-ins for nomination, Alan Cunningham, blah, 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 and everyone s- says that you, that you think you're going to 
be nominated, or indeed also when it, if you're nominated and they, think, they say you think you're going to win, that if you don't get nominated, and this happened with Macbeth because everyone did think I was going to get nominated, including myself, I have to say, um, then, they, then you get all this pity. You get like real, <laughs> like pity, if everyone's, and you get pity presents, which is quite good. That's a good <laughs> but, and then but after, when you, when you say you're at the, you know, was at the Golden Globes or something that earlier this year, and I, I knew I wasn't going to win, but it's just, you know, you, you're, you're, there's a chance you might, there's one in five chance. And then when it's not your name, you're like, okay, great, so where's the bar? <laughs> and, um, and you see all people going like, <laughs> sad face, you know. So there's, it's, um, I think, you know, it's like reviews, awards and everything are like reviews. If you believe the good ones, you have to believe the bad ones. And I think it's always, obviously it's lovely to be lauded and to be told that people like you and appreciate your work, but it's not why I do it. And I, I you know, it was actually a very interesting experience when that happened because it reinforced me, like what was important to me was doing that play and, and reaching an audience that I was really excited were coming to a Broadway theatre. Thank you. Uh, in the blue with the scarf, yeah. So the question is, what did you enjoy about your role on The Good Wife and doing TV in general? Well, um, first of all, what, it was a really great uh, experience for me. To, it was like you know, six years I worked on it for nine months of every year. And it was a really, um, it really sort of made me very stable. And, and I you know, had structure in my life that previously hadn't been there. And I was able to be at home in New York for at least nine months of the year, which had never happened before. I was always you know, jetting around the world which sounds lovely, and it is lovely, but, you know, it gets a little old when you just want to be at home. So it, it made me, it gave me a great sense of stability um, in terms of my, my home life and also financially, you know, it was just nice to have a regular pay check. And also it, ki it kind of made me, I kind of grew up a little bit. I mean, I sort of now I'm a, I feel like I'm a man who can, I'm a middle-aged man, and I can play people who are real middle-aged men in suits. Because <laughs> when, when I first did it, when I was first cast, it, nobody could believe that they cast me. I'd never really played real people before. I mean, I'd hardly played... <laughs> a lot of them weren't even humans I played, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so I always played kind of extreme people and kind of fantastical people. So the idea that I was playing... that I mean, he, I think he's as crazy as, you know, a, a mutant, but mm -hmm. uh, n nonetheless, it was a different thing for me. So in a way, I really appreciate it for that reason as well, that I feel I've grown up a little bit because of it in, and in terms of how people perceive me, perhaps. But, oh, um, but in terms of the character, I, I mean, it was a great thing to kind of come into a show... That was, you know, I, I was. In, it was in the middle of the first season. It was this big hit, and I kind of came in, and and they had this great idea for a character. And I kind of, you know, it was a very interesting back and forth thing with the writers. That you do something, they kind of pick up on it, and and I loved how crazy he was, you know. And just this, every time I think of him, I just kind of tense up. <laughs> and and someone said, "Oh, you lost weight all during those years." I think that's probably because I was just so tense all the time <laughs> playing Eli. Um, and and he was just a really fun character to play. And as it you know as it go, grew and went on, there was more facets of him. And I loved my relationship, his relationship with my, his daughter, and you know, and it was just a really I, I, I look back on it with such fondness and and uh, a great bunch of people. And I like I'm actually you know I've actually signed on to do another television show for CBS that if it all goes well, if it's all you know uh, the pilot shot and they like it, we'll shoot it, start shooting again and. Uh, next July and will be on on television in September, I presume. And I actually really do. I've, I've realised I really enjoy that structure. It's uh, it's it's kind of I'm quite willing to dive back into. It. It's been nice to have a little break from it and kind of be able to dash around a bit. But yeah, I like it. The heart on your sweater.
Thank you. Uh, So, so the question was, before you were Alan Cumming, <laughs> who helped you out when you were just Alan? Well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I feel really, when I, I, you know, I, went, to drama, I went to drama school when I was 17. I had no back, I, I applied for one drama school. It was the only drama school I knew of in Scotland. There was only, there was only one. <laughs> um, and then I had no backup plan. Uh, I trained for three years and then I immediately just started working and I've worked ever, si you know, ever since. I'm, it's really boring. I know it's awful. <laughs> but, uh, and annoying as well because people... I know, uh, in a funny way, I think it's quite interesting that people kind of, if you're an actor, they kind of expect you, sort of expect it, you, you've struggled. Um, and I haven't. And also, but I think a lot of that's to do with... I've, I've, I've made a lot of my own work, like this book, like my show tonight. Like I have done things like that like the film that um, the, the gentleman talked about, you know, with Jennifer. We've, I've written and made a lot of things myself, and so that kind of helps, you know, because you don't always have to rely on people uh, doing things back to you. But like, I suppose, you know, the, there's this guy, the, the very first uh, theatre thing I did was actually Macbeth. I played Malcolm in a, like a proper production. It wasn't just a crazy person doing all the parts. <laughs> and um, he's, this, he's this director at the... He used to recently ran the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's called Michael Boyd, and I was a student at drama school. And he, I actually, I used to do this stand-up comedy thing with another boy called Victor and Barry. And we we'd been doing uh, there was gong shows in the bar of this theatre, and we won the gong show. And and then there was like the gong of gongs, and we had to come in, and we won that too. And so he saw me doing this crazy sort of campy double act, um, and then cast me in, in a, as th you know, to play a prince in, in Macbeth. And, and so I guess he, he gave me my first sort of uh, break. And yeah, and that was, that was, you know, that was like 75,000 years ago. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, a black shirt. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Thank you. So what would your piece of advice be for an up-and-coming performer? I always say just try and be yourself. Try and resist the temptation and resist the pressure to become a type or a generic version of yourself and actually embrace who you are and embrace your own experience because that is the most interesting thing about yourself. And I feel like, I always say to people, like when you look at a screen, there's certain people you're more drawn to, you know? It's, there's just, that's, and I suppose that's what being a star is. It's, it's people are, are fascinated by you. But I think the people that we are fascinated with are people who are allowing their own spirits to come through and are not kind of closing themselves off um, and, be, and being a sort of a generic type. So that's, that would be, it's hard and it's, it's easy for me to say, but I think that, that's always the advice I give to young performers. Uh, in the bright green? So the question is... Right. Oh, yes, go ahead. <laughs> what is your internal dialogue like? Right now it's like, why did that lady ask me that question? Uh. <laughs> 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 um, do you mean, like, do I have, like, kind of, uh, you know, anxious voices and things? I'm not quite sure what internal dialogue... I think I am authentic. You know, I think that's what... I do strive for that, and that's... Actually, my show tonight is... There's a, you know, an overall theme is about authenticity 
And um, I feel that, again, like this, with that, uh, what the question you asked about advice to a young performer, being authentic, I think, is what we all should be. Uh, and it's something, I think, to, to strive for as a human being as well as a performer. Um, and I think I found it's, it's always stood me in good stead. You know, I think that the, the more I am my own man and open and, and speak out about things that I think need to be said, I think, I, I often think actually, I, I've noticed that doing my Sapi Song show, I go to places in the world where, you know, and I'm with audiences that I know probably don't agree with my politics or even agree with my rights as a queer person, actually. But I find that if you are open and honest and authentic, they'll probably respect you for that more than if you were someone who agreed with their politics. So it's a really interesting lesson to learn that um, that's, you know, that kind of trumps. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, ill will. So, but so I don't really know what my internal dialogue is. It's probably just like, you know, when did I last take my vitamins and stuff like that. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> Sorry, it's not a very good answer. Sorry. Um, in the maroon right here in the middle? Yes. Hi. So what did you give Eli and what did Eli give back to you as a character? Um, well, I think I think one of the things why Eli was so sort of popular was that people could, there was a sort of, it was almost a Brechtian thing, it was almost like, like I, people knew it was me playing Eli, do you know what I mean? There was a sort of thing that it was quite fun to see what I was going to do with this person, and, they, and so in a way, and I think people, you know, knew that I was very different to him, um, so there was kind of an interesting... I'm quite intrigued by that. That also happened, you meant, Lydia mentioned Macbeth. I, when I did Macbeth, I really noticed that people were worried for me, Alan, as, as well as um, the character in, in this very violent sort of situation I was in. But um, so I think I, um, uh, I, I gave Eli probably a sense of uh, quirkiness and a sense of humor that might not have been there originally. And, uh, and what he gave me was sort of um <laughs> um, I, I maybe more a bit of tension and kind of you know an ulcer or something. <laughs> <but I don't> <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I also I also felt like you know I'd arrive on set and sometimes like in the summer when I'd be at these I would go to these sort of beach parties with all funny costumes and everything and I'd come back in on Monday and the uh, you know the makeup ladies would be like there is glitter on your cheek. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and I'd you know I'd go in, <laughs> I would go in do rehearsal in my like you know Uggs and whatever and flip flops or whatever and. And then, you know, and, and an old T-shirt and, and come down all, you know, I, I said it was like getting into Eli drag uh, when <laughs> I, I'd put on my suit and get my hair all done. And, and sometimes people wouldn't, really, wouldn't, wouldn't recognise me, th some of the crew. Um, and sometimes we'd have to stop filming because, like, if I would turn around and say something and say, we see a bit of glitter on Eli's eyes. <laughs> <a bit." laughs> and then in the, se in the season six, the, the penultimate season, I was, that was when I was doing Cabaret as, again as well. And so I, I see clips of I've got loads of eyeliner on from the night before. <laughs> I've got more eyeliner than Alicia, actually, in some of the scenes. The gentleman in the blue on the end? <laughs> Go ahead, Joe. You can repeat Go that ahead. question? Or? You can repeat that I'll, question. Oh, well. <laughs> well, maybe I'll I will, it will become apparent in my answer. Um, I think theatre has always been a platform for questioning social change, politics, that's what it's for. It's, you know, it's, it's a place that people come together 
yes, to be entertained, but also to be informed and challenged. And, you know, I thought it was interesting when, um, again, to, you know, go back to our president-elect, uh, when, when this whole thing with, uh, when the vice president-elect was booed and they did the speech at the end of Hamilton, and uh, the president said, you know, the theater is a safe place. It should be a safe place and blah, blah. I thought, absolutely not. It's not a safe place. It should be a vital, dangerous place. Anything could happen in the theater, you know? And, and that's why we come. It's, it's exciting. It's not safe. I don't think safety is what I would think of. I mean, I like going into the building and feeling at home there. But it's because that's a, I, I feel that I can express myself. And, and, you know, it's a place of ideas and it's a place of challenge. So I think that's always been the case. And I, I think especially now, you know, it's always interesting when there's when there's a, uh, a more right-wing government, you see a rise in satire, uh, performance and writing, and, 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 and I'm sure you know, one of the positive things about uh, President Trump will be the, uh, a, a really feckin' time for uh, writing and protest <laughs> in this country. But so I, um, and I think, as a, I mean, I feel, like I feel like I have a responsibility as an actor, as a writer, to um, speak out, and as a celebrity as well, uh, I, I think this idea that celebrities should not say anything is really why, why, why? Uh, are, they have opinions. They are citizens. They have, you know, and if you have a platform, there's a reason for that. If people want to ask you about, you know, what colour your hair is, I think then they should at least listen to you about the, your politics. So I, I don't um, adhere to this idea that uh, being famous is uh, 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 sort of um, equals silence. Especially when, if you're an actor and you've an a been an actor from the theatre, where you are um, embodying ideas and embodying uh, challenge and asking the audience to... I mean, you're a vessel for uh, social change, I think. So I, I do feel a responsibility for that. I think uh, very much so in the plays that I do, I make... I, 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 you know, to do a play, I have to be really challenged because it's a big commitment. And I try and... Try and with all the material, I try and you know, that I do, I try and kind of find something that excites me and I feel is, is, has some good. And sometimes I just do things for the money. But <laughs> in the theatre, I always try and uh, make sure that what I'm doing ha has some relevance and some social impact. And I think that's what my job is. I mean, that's why I say I'm a provocateur, because I think I don't, wa I don't want to just be an entertainer. Even tonight, you know, it's, it's just me singing songs and telling stories, but I feel I'm challenging people and, you know, maybe making them think again about some things. Mm -hmm. uh, here. Gosh, that's an oh, <laughs> Which Shakespearean character would Donald Trump be? It's a weird sentence to even yeah. say. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a very good point. I, d it's such I, I, I haven't actually you know, given this much thought. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Iago, but he's not clever enough <laughs> to that. I mean, maybe one of the sort of kind of those drunk people in um, Twelfth Night, what do you call them? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I don't know there's yet... Uh, uh, sh even Shakespeare hasn't managed to <laughs> encompass Donald Trump into a role. I mean, I guess it would be like a sort of someone... I mean, what I think is interesting about he's someone who needs approbation and needs power and needs to feel that he is 
um, the, the winner. And so I'm sure there will, there, there's probably uh, characters in Shakespeare like this, but, but of course it's because he doesn't feel very good about himself, I think. And I don't think he wanted to win. I think I actually know from someone that uh, you know, knows him that he's absolutely gobsmacked right now that he won. He, can't, he couldn't believe he even got the nominations. And I, and I, like, I, I agree. But <laughs> I don't think in a way, I think he wants to win. I think he needs to. And that's why I think actually right now is probably the safest time. And because he's won, he's the big guy, he's the top. You know, psychologically, he's in a safe place for a while. It's an, and then he's, he's not against the wall being attacked. So, uh, but I think perhaps if it, uh, the character would be someone who is, you know, really, really wants, wants power and wants fame and success for its own sake and not for, it's, it's, a, it's an empty shell, I think. That's, that, I don't know quite who that would be in Shakespeare, but I'm sure there must be someone. Couple one down, more. Yeah, down here in front. I have a question, but I was gonna say Malvolio. Oh, that's the one from, uh, yes, that's the one from Twelfth Night, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was adored once too, that's his great <laughs> line. <laughs> you have to bring that up. <laughs> you handled it beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm curious about your process of releasing your natural voice and working with uh, American accents or different accents. Do you have a process for that or do you just take and how do you find your voice? So how do you find your voice, whether it's with accents or your natural one? Well. It's, it's not as hard as, it, as everyone thinks, I have to say. I think actually the fact that I sound like this and yet I, you know, people have seen me so l often playing an American person and they think that's much harder. It's, it's not that difficult, um, partly because I grew up in a country that is bombarded with American culture. Like 95% of the films and cinemas are, are American voices in them. A huge percentage of, of television, probably more than you know, we hear British voices actually. Maybe not, but you know, and that doesn't work the same way. But we get you know Downton Abbey once in a while, and that's kind of it. So, um, <laughs> so what I mean is, I grew up hearing that those sounds, and I grew up, you know, I, I, most people in Scotland can do a passable American accent, mm. you know. So it's not that big a leap. And also, I think I, you know, as an actor, I was told in Scot, you know, I went to this place called the Royal Scottish Academy, and. Um, I, I was told that I wasn't going to work as an actor sounding like me, and I had to learn, you know, receive, um, sort of English, receive pronunciation. So I, I, um, that was kind of, a, I think, a, a generational thing. That's not the case now, that I think, you know, I, people do much more speak with their own voices in Britain. But it, it set me off on a track of being very, very conscious about accent and listening and having a good ear for things. So I've always done a lot of different accents. I mean, um, I... You know, for an American one now, I don't have a coach unless it's somewhere difficult. Like I did a film in Minnesota about ten years ago, and I had, I had, a, I had a, uh oh, did we lose someone? <laughs> mentioned Minnesota, sent someone <laughs> crying. Um, and I had, a, I had a, so I had an accent coach for that. That's a really beautiful film, actually called Sweetland. If you get a chance to see it, I love it. And then um, the, just the, the final thing you said about the, my process, I, I, I find the word process very difficult. And I will say I'm not a cheese. I have no process. <laughs> <laughs> because I just think with acting and everything, you should just make it, you should not try and overcomplicate it. You know, when I'm playing an American person, I just do an American accent and just try and inhabit that person and just mean it and not have too much of um, a process that kind of gets in the way of just, you know, I think acting should be like kids playing. It should just be they completely inhabit a character and pretend to be in the situation, and that's how that's really how I came to acting was just making up stories to amuse myself. And um, I think th there's been, a, especially in this country, there's a lot of time and money wasted um, with all these, you know, 
methods and processes and things. And I just think it would, the world would be a better place if we just everything was a bit simpler. So I know that your time is very valuable and you have to run here, uh, so you won't be able to stay and, and do some signings and things. Anyone who signed read every single book. Every, well, we the did. signings, oh, four people. It. We saw we that. Watched it. Yeah. Yes. Did Amendment. It. Amendment. Put, you won't be able video to. On Instagram after everyone this. here won't be able to watch you sign the book. Uh, but anyone who has read your book or follows you on social media knows that you are basically. I'm going to say you're the inventor of the selfie. <laughs> so we had an idea that we yes. could get everyone if we could maybe just do a quick selfie here yeah, with the crowd behind us. Come here. Give me a phone. That's <laughs> perfect. And we'll just tag each and every one of you. Yeah. It'll be great. It'll be great. No. Okay, so let me think. So got I one. Here. I think you might have to go. Yeah, you're going to be the one they want to see anyway. Yeah. You need to go down. Yeah, to go down yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going down the stairs. That's good. I don't want to, like, get in front of everybody. Adam, go over, see a bit. This way. This way. Right, left. That's good. Okay, so we've got the majority of you. Ready? One, two, three, smile. <laughs> Nailed it. Alan coming, everybody. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.